Welcome to Nothing But The Truth with me, Elizabeth Bowden. I'm a barrister. In this episode, I'm going to tell you more about me and how I got to be a barrister at College Chambers in Southampton and give you nothing but the truth about being a barrister. I could not do any other job. These are life-changing things that I deal with with people on a day-to-day basis. This is nothing but the truth, so I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's really tough. And there are days that I go home and cry, but there are days that I go home and I'm giddy with excitement because my client has cried, because they are so overjoyed or because they are so relieved at the outcome that I've managed to help them get. Is it worth it? Hell yes. I'm Zoe Hansen. As a presenter and podcaster, I'll be helping things along the way and posing all those tricky questions. So, Elizabeth, did you always want to be a barrister? Or, you know, when you were little, did you want to be a train driver? I don't think train driver ever came on my radar. I was very lucky. I grew up with ponies, uh, so I enjoyed (laughs) riding my ponies. Um, Embarrassing for me, I even got to take them to school. But I had always on my radar wanted to do something more interesting. I think I got into the idea of being a barrister genuinely because I am that old because Rumpole of the Bailey was on. I thought that like a really good job. I was very much attracted to a profession where I got to wear a wig and swan around in a gown. And I thought that was an excellent idea, uh, which makes me all the more sad that I don't get to wear my wig as often as I'd like to because I (laughs) don't do crime these days. So I think that's where the seed got planted. And I think when you get careers days, people talk to you about things. And I was quite an opinionated child and young person. And I had no difficulty standing my corner or arguing my case. And I think people just often told me that they thought they would make a good lawyer or a good barrister. And because I grew up also in London and my parents had friends who were in those circles, uh, from quite a young age, I managed to get mini pupillages, a sort of work experience in chambers. And that was always in the in the area. So I was always going to Crown Courts to watch and follow barristers and just fell in love really with the idea of presenting a case which is also quite like telling a story and I do like telling a story. And what's the difference between being a lawyer and being a barrister? The easiest way to describe it is that anyone who's to study science is a scientist Mm -hmm. but not every scientist is a doctor. Or not every scientist is, an, you know, a rocket scientist. So anyone who studies law or is in the university or beyond is a lawyer. But when it comes down to whether you're a barrister or a solicitor, that's a professional qualification. So I've, I am a lawyer, will always be a lawyer, but I'm also professionally qualified as a barrister. And how long were you a lawyer for? Tell us about the journey, where that takes you. Rather ridiculously, my A-levels were biology, chemistry and history. So knowing that, that's not really indicative if you think that someone's going to go into a legal profession. I mean, there's a rough hint from history because it's analysing information and looking at, you know, why things happened and arguments and reasoning and all that sort of thing. Of course, I've never thought of it like that. Yeah. (laughs) But the biology and chemistry, yeah, not quite as an indicative thing. But I'd reached those subjects because they were the ones I found easiest at GCSEs and probably will tell you quite a lot about me that I picked the A-levels that I thought I would get the highest grades in based on how easy I found them. So arrogance, you know, 16-year-old me went, well, I didn't have to pick up a book for GCSE. That'll be fine. I'll do biology, chemistry and history. Well, that was an error because I walked into biology and chemistry and that turned out to be a whole heap harder than anyone (laughs) told me that it would be. I have decided, having got rather embarrassing a C in my chemistry A-level, that you either have to be a genius or insane to get anything above the C. (laughs) (laughs) Because, wow, that was a mind melt. But I got the C and that was, you know, just about enough to get me into university. 
but picking a university course, although I'd done many pupillages and although I was inclined to becoming a barrister, I wasn't 100% fixed on it. But because I'm essentially a lazy person, I figured that I would get the most bang for my buck degree-wise if I did law. It would get me into as wide a range of jobs as possible. Yeah. So I thought, well, if I can't decide and I'm not sure and I'm not sort of fixed on what I'm going to do in life, I'll go and do a law degree because that's going to open the most number of doors for me. I felt if I did history, I was basically stuck with teaching and if I did chemistry or biology I was stuck with teaching uh, this was the mind of a 16 year old at the time I'm not doing down anyone who's doing those degrees now but that's no, what course. I thought at the, you know when I was deciding what I would do for a degree so I picked law went to study law um, and whilst I was at university again I did more mini pupillages I definitely this was an area that I was interested in but I also knew that it was going to be quite hard work um, and I read a fascinating book by uh, she's now a baroness uh, Helena Kennedy who basically said it's tough it's really tough. Being a woman in this profession is pretty hideous. It's very male orientated from the mm. clerks throughout. Um, you're always uh, up against it in terms of sexism and people assuming you can't do the job simply because you're a woman. And I was, you know, young and at university and I read that and I thought, oh, sod that. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to pick something that's not quite so much hard work. And decided against it. Was totally dead against it. So dead against it that I actually missed the, the application deadline for bar school. Weirdly, uh, Helena Kennedy came to speak at my university and I had a chat with her, you know, as you do, young and confident, just walk <laughs> up to the important person and just witter on and said, mm, is it worth it being a barrister? Because your book wasn't, you know, really all that encouraging. And she said, I wouldn't have done anything else. And I suddenly went, oh, it's not really that bad. It's worth it. It's worth the, the hard work, the dealing with the, you know, very male dominated profession. It's worth it. Oh, okay. Ah, now I need to go and make an application to bar school and applied late and got in, luckily. Um, and then went to bar school after university because I'd, you know, obviously already taken a gap year by then. And then you did your pupillage and then you became a barrister. So how long have you been a barrister? I know in one of the later episodes, I want to cover off the secret language of barristers, but because we like to use special words because we're an old fashioned profession, <laughs> I was called to the bar in 2001. So as far as the bar council is concerned, that's the date that I became a barrister. That doesn't necessarily align with the date that you started practicing as a barrister. Okay. And it doesn't necessarily align with the number of years post qualification experience that you have. But the day that you sign the book at the inn of court that you are a member of, that's the date that you're called to the bar and that's the date I've been a barrister from as far as the, the records are concerned. And you said about it's totally worth it. Tell me why it's worth it for you. I would say it's absolutely totally worth it. I mean, I, I'm, this is nothing but the truth, so I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's really tough. And there are days that I go home and cry. I say that I'm 410 and there are still days that I go home from work sometimes and cry. But there are days that I go home and I'm giddy with excitement because my client has cried because they are so overjoyed or because they are so relieved at the outcome that I've managed to help them get. You know, there's, I don't do it all on my own. I have clients. They're quite important in that process. Solicitors are really important in that process. But, you know, collectively we've achieved an outcome. Is it worth it? Hell yes. Every job has a good day and a bad day. And I think the fact that I have low lows in my job because quite a lot rides on it, it's really important. You know, These are life-changing things that I deal with with people on a day-to-day -day basis, that there are really low points when you think, I didn't help somebody or, you know, uh, I wish I had done whatever. You know, everyone looks back and reflects with hindsight, don't they? But then the days when it goes well, yeah, it's totally worth it. But it's, it's me. It, I mean, I... 
I could not do any other job. Thinking about sort of every day, so it's not just court time all the time, is it? You know, thinking about the other things that you have to do. So maybe you're in chambers or you're having to go for dinners or maybe it's... Because you have to do quite a lot of networking, right? I think the reality is is that people think being a barrister is just all great. It's about wearing a wig and putting a gown on and, you know, going to court. In my mind, it's, you know, you are given, you know, a big tome of information. As long as you've got that information in your head, off you go with a gown on and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, I wish. I wish (laughs) that's what it was like. But because we are all self-employed, I am essentially my own small business. And you will know, and anyone listening will know, that anyone who's running a small business works really hard. That the product is a a smaller part of that business, probably, than the pipeline, if you Mm -hmm. use full-on corporate Mm -hmm. speak. Um, The marketing, the PR, the networking, the relationship building forms quite a big aspect of that. So when my job is fairly time-hungry, so... I get up in the day, I've got a court hearing at 10. Clients think, oh, they're swanning around between now and 10. No, no, no. I'm, you know, I've had a conversation with the solicitor. I've had a conversation with the person on the other side. I've exchanged position statements. I've, you know, read their position statement. I've thought about how I'm going to reply to their position statement. Then I meet the client at 9.30. I have a half an hour conversation with them before the hearing at 10. I take all that information in, then try and do something intelligent with that information before I go into court to deal with a court hearing that I'm supposed to be dealing with. So I haven't been sat around twiddling my thumbs between 9 and 10. 10, there's sort of a very intense period of work that gets done before we actually go in front of the judge. Then I have to deal with what the judge is going to ask me to deal with. Then we come out of court and then I have to have conversations with the other side, particularly if we're drafting an order to agree what's in the order. We either will agree it, won't agree it. We might have to go back to the judge to get the order tweaked. Then I have to get it off to the client so the client has to approve it. And then we have to send it in to be agreed. Another 20 emails have gone past. And I'm feeling I stressed it, out and <laughs> just you telling me. <laughs> and then before I know it, something the clerks were like, oh, don't worry, it's only half an hour in the morning then you can get on with the paperwork that you needed to do today it's half past one and you're like what right now I've got to work out get my head around the fact that I now have to the paperwork I'd set a whole day aside for I now literally have the afternoon to do but I'm really hungry but I'm half an hour from you know chambers or but I'm half an hour from home and factor in this travel time I've done things before where I've finished court, sat in my car, written an attendance note before I've got on on the road so I can get that bit done. So by the time I get home or into chambers, I've got the free time to work. Then you do the bit of paperwork or while the clerks are calling you because you've got a hearing the next day and the solicitor wants to talk to you or they've been late filing something and another document's come in. And then, you know, you've had another 20 emails land in your inbox. Honestly, it's like death by email these days. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I I liked it in the olden days where you just get a brief of papers and if they hadn't given it to you, they hadn't given it to you. That was it. (laughs) You know, emergency facts might come through do you remember faxes you you might get a fax the day before but they were pretty limited in the pieces of paper you could put in couldn't you so that really held them back would you get a message on your pager to say that there was a fax (laughs) i never had a pager pager sort of passed me by my little sisters managed to score a pager but i never got one bring them back i think they are coming back i've heard rumors I've heard rumours. It's a one-way conversation. You don't. You're not under pressure to reply. Yeah, right. I might get one. Uh, how many cases do you have on average running in the background, the foreground? You know, how many do you have on your desk at the moment? I've never counted them up. Do you think that's quite Freudian? I think I'd rather not know. But I so the, in the areas that I practice, civil and family, I rarely have more than one court hearing a day, although it's possible. 
I don't really like to have more than about three court hearings in a week. Um, if I end up caught five times a week, I am on my knees tired because it's yeah. not just the time in court, it's all of the other bits and pieces. The clerks manage my diary on a you know Friday, Saturday, I might sit down and, and horizon gaze for what's coming up in the week ahead and plan my time accordingly. But often I'll do a bit on a case and it'll go away and I don't have to worry about it again until the next thing comes in. So I think, yes, Freudianly, I just put, they literally fall out of my head and I don't have to worry about them. But there are other barristers doing other areas of law that have five, six, seven cases a day. Okay. My, my brain is, is, would find that impossible. Also, I wouldn't be able to keep up on the number of draft orders I would have to do. Right. I don't think I could do that. When you talk about going to court and standing up in court, do you have training for that? At some point. I don't know whether it's about the inflection of your voice or... I suppose the only thing I can sort of quantify it with is media training. I think barristers would do really well if they had media training. At bar school, you have particular advocacy modules. So you have criminal advocacy and civil advocacy. And I remember... It's about the 15th time I've said this now, but in the olden days, because I am 410, our advocate, it was, it was filmed on a, on a video camera with like a VHS cassette in it. Okay. Hilarious. <laughs> so I think, oh, and I'm sure I'll get corrected if I'm wrong. I think what would happen is we would have one cassette and we would take our cassette to each of our lessons and they would put it in the camera and record. Yeah. And then you take your cassette away with you. So you could then watch it at home and watch yourself back. Because obviously, I this hope was you've still got it. Digital stuff. <laughs> I think I might have destroyed it because it was just <laughs> awful. But so you get quite a lot of training and feedback. And often it's like, could you please stop umming? Could you please stop ring? And then I have had people before say their feedback was, you're really quite difficult to listen to. <laughs> I don't know what you do with but, that. But imagine that. So somebody becomes a barrister, but they've got a very shrill voice. Imagine if there was somebody. Yes, yeah, like, What could you do? Well, you'd hope at bar school, bearing in mind you've paid a small fortune to be there, they would point that out. Because but you can't change somebody's voice. Well, you can. Didn't Maggie Thatcher change her voice? Did she? I think she dropped From down an octave to be. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, to make it more easy to listen to. I mean, that um, with, the, with the risk of um, my feminist traits coming out, I think that's because it was perceived that men would have difficulty listening to a high-pitched woman okay. as, a, as a voice of authority. But if you listen, often... Women in positions of power authority have a deeper voice. Yes. Because the higher the voice or the more girly, you're just not taken seriously. Yes. So if you talk like this and you say to someone, really, there's no way that we can do that. And if you do that, the company will fold. People are like, yeah, whatever. But if you say, actually, we can't do that. And if we do that, the company will fold. People take you more seriously. Yes. So, yeah, at bar school, there's an element of voice training or you being made aware that you have to be listened to. This is the tool of your trade. So there is no point going out there with a rubbish tool. And this is where your authority comes from, isn't it? Yes. So you mentioned Rumpole of the Bailey. We've all seen courtrooms and barristers on the TV. And is it like that? Is there is there one programme that you watch or have watched ever where you think, yeah, that's the closest you're going to get? Yes and no. I mean, that's a very lawyer answer, isn't it? <laughs> Quite often those dramas in a few of the moments are realistic. 
the courtrooms are realistic. The uh, dress that somebody's got on is realistic, although when they get it wrong, it really annoys me. You know, nobody goes to court in a gown without a suit jacket under it. But, you know, there we go. That's wardrobe for you, isn't it? But the fact is, in a series, a courtroom-based series, all of those things may happen to a barrister over the course of a lifetime or, or things like that. But what that series does is distill it down into six episodes. So it looks like that happens every day. Yes. Um, but it just doesn't. I guess that's probably like for anyone's drama or profession, you know, doctors who watch doctor dramas go, well, yes, that's possible. Or I've had something like that. But, you know, that happened. And then 10 years later, the next thing happened. It's not the next episode or the next minute. So, yes, it's like it is on telly, but not all the time. You mentioned about hard work. You mentioned about going home and, you know, crying because it hasn't gone your way it just hasn't fallen for you that day give me an example of like a really hard day of a day where where you've just thought oh my gosh I don't know if I can keep going here I think it's days where where you feel that you could have made a difference so if my client goes in or someone else's client goes into the witness box and totally mucks it up I'm long enough in the tooth to know that I couldn't have done nothing about that Mm -hmm. I have done my job a hundred percent as good as I could have done it I have no control over how someone gives their evidence that's down to them the days where I feel that it goes badly and the ones that really make me sad are where I look back and think I could have done a better job Mm -hmm. I think Everybody can do that. But I am old enough and confident enough to say that I cannot, I I can't live by hindsight. All I can do is learn from that and become a better barrister, but also a better person, because I think it's a good philosophy for life. So I try not to beat myself up when I look back and go, I wish I had done that, or I wish I had done it better, because I will go, why did that happen? I understand why it happened. This is the lesson that I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to make sure that I do why in the future or it doesn't happen again or I prevent something happening. I will always strive to learn from my mistakes um, or my learning curves because sometimes it's not a mistake that I've made. It's something else has happened or, you know, the judge has done something or, you know, a witness has done something that has had a catastrophic effect on my case but I mm-hmm. you know I, I although I have some level of control over it because I you know I asked a question or something you know it's not a mistake per se it's just a learning curve can you think of a case where you know you're, you're there in court and your heart just sinks you think oh that is not where I wanted it to go is there one occasion that you think of that you go yeah, that was it Less often now, obviously, when you're a baby barrister on your feet, you sometimes ask a question that you wished you'd, in hindsight, that you wouldn't have asked. Nowadays, it's when usually my opponent asks my client or one of my witnesses a question and they give an answer that I hadn't anticipated. And then I'm asking myself why I hadn't asked that witness that question out of court so I could have anticipated the answer. So I was in court once and it was a personal injury case. And my client had listed that they'd had previously on, on, on occasion had had a sword back because it was a car accident. They'd hurt their back in. The other side were exploring whether this was a pre-existing injury and just an exacerbation rather than a new injury. And out of left field, my client said, oh, well, I've always had a bad back since I was imprisoned by the Taliban for six months and tortured. And I just could not understand where this had come from because there was no mention of this previous history, back history in any of the papers that I had. And then you walk away from court going, should I have asked more about his earlier life or what could I have done to stop that? I mean, obviously I'm then in court and doing the best I can to then in re-examination ask questions that will limit the amount of damage 
that that question's done to his claim for personal injury. But then it's asking yourself, what can I learn from that? In future, is there, am I going to add a, another question to the questions I always try and ask my clients or the information I give my clients before they go into court? I'm not sure I could have anticipated that one, but I do now ask my clients fairly open questions about their health that they've had previously right. to at least try and understand whether there's something in their a skeleton in their closet that we should know about before they go into the of course. box. I mean, it's not a mistake if you learn from it, is it, you know, okay, right, next time I will ask, I will go further back or, you know, have you been away? <laughs> <laughs> so if someone's thinking about a career in law becoming a barrister what should they be aware of and actually the next episode is about how to get from bar school to pupillage to barrister but what sort of pitfalls might there be what should they just know about they need to be aware that they are a small business so if you don't have the self-drive to do that this is unlikely to be a profession that you're going to enjoy because you have to drive yourself and your business forward. Yes, I have the support of the clerks, but unless I'm going out to networking things, unless I'm putting myself forward for webinars, unless I'm doing this, unless I've engaged accountants, unless I'm looking at my expenses and my profitability and my pipeline, my business will fail. I cannot rely on anyone else to generate my business for me. The clerks are great and, you know, stuff comes into my diary but through chambers, but there becomes a point where you have to, you as a business is what is attracting people, not just chambers as a business is attracting people. So going into that fact that you're going to need to understand basic businesses, marketing, profitability, you know, sustainability, all of those things, you're not just going to get to put your wig on and go to court. There's this whole other aspect to being a barrister. And VAT returns. And Don't VAT forget returns. the VAT returns. <laughs> do you have to specialise? Do you have to, or when do you have to decide which area of law you're going to work within? So you said that you do family and civil. So, and you don't do criminal, because I think that's what everybody thinks every barrister does, right? Yeah. But when do you have to decide that? And how do you decide that? And does it come down to chambers as well? So I'm going to start with the human basics. My philosophy life, people are lazy and uh, people are greedy. Um, so in terms of specialising, if you're driven by money, you won't be doing crime. Okay. Because whoever you are representing in, in a criminal court, you're paid by the government. So it's either legal aid or it's the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service. Okay. If you're being paid by the government, you're not being paid brilliantly. There's, there's no beating around that bush. However, you are in the Crown Court, so you're wearing your wig and gown every day and making cases, you know, jury speeches, which is heavenly and uh, I love and I miss. So I originally qualified as a criminal barrister specialised in crime and only did crime. Was really genuinely not interested in doing civil or family, thought that was rubbish. Prided myself on never opening up the white book while I was, I was in pupillage. Not sure how I got away with that, but I did. Only to find myself now, um, we'll get to it eventually about how I found myself doing civil and family. So people are lazy. Often people will end up specialising in, in an area directed by their chambers and or their clerk because it just sort of happens to them. Right. So if you happen to get pupillage in a mixed set, so one that does civil crime and family or, or various of those three, then you will end up doing a mix of what that chambers does. If you end up being in a tax specialist chambers, the chances are you've worked on that since before DOT, like the chances are you were an accountant before right. you became a specialist tax barrister. Or if you're in a you know a media chambers, the chances are that you had jobs and were working in media before you decided you were going 
going to be a media barrister. You've directed your career in that way. But for a lot of barristers, they start off doing a bit of everything and find what they enjoy or what they're good at okay. or, or what their clerks have sent them What's directed to, to them, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Which is great, which is fine. I have been working on, since I came back to the independent bar, trying to find a sweet spot, like a Venn diagram yeah. of covering as many areas of law as possible. Now, do you remember I said I was basically lazy? Well, here's a massive confession. As many areas of law as possible for knowing as little law as possible. <laughs> Because keeping up to date with all of the areas is hard work. So yeah, there's another thing you need to know. So not only you're a small business, not only then do you have to go out and do your day job, you have to keep ahead of the game on the law. So that's leading, reading the law reports, that's reading the press, that's understanding what statutes are going through Parliament, that's understanding if any changes are coming. And you're like, oh, Elizabeth, why do you need to know what's coming? Because it's just the law that's relevant. Well, here we go. I do family finances. The fact that the lifetime allowance is coming off pensions next year means that I need to be advising clients now that actually it might be in their interest to delay settling their matrimonial finances case until after the lifetime allowance has come off their pensions. But if I wasn't looking ahead and understanding what was coming down the legal pipeline, yeah. I wouldn't be giving my clients good advice now. So you can imagine my exciting bedtime reading list. Uh, <laughs> it's full of all of those brilliant things. No um, time for Love Island. <laughs> sadly, although I did end up watching a series with my daughter um, and that was more gripping than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Slightly embarrassed to say that. I haven't made it to another series because I did. They, yes, it's, um, I've have struggled to get into another series. Maybe it was just that one off. I can ask me who they were. Not, the, a, not an idea. This series is rubbish. This yeah. series is absolute rubbish. <laughs> but oddly, I do in the evenings like to watch the the most intellectually unchallenging television possible. I don't have to think because the chances are I'm drafting an order or writing an attendance note at the same time as watching telly. So yes, another aspect that's, of this job that's not great, it can be all consuming and I find myself doing a lot of things out of hours so that I can get up to speed. So I'm just treading water for the next day. So just a final question for you. So in the sort of law hierarchy, and this is just a normal person on the street, right? Zoe, myself, I would like to ask, do you want to be a judge? Because it seems to me that you go lawyer, barrister, judge. Is that sort of the career ambition or is this it? My big pause there is because here's nothing but the truth. It comes down to money. If I took up a position as a part-time judge, so in the in the county court, that would be a deputy district judge, um, or you can become a part-time judge in a, in a role called a recorder. We should put that on the list of, of other words we need to decode in the secret language of barristers. Because <laughs> why you would call a judge a recorder, eh, that's a weird one. But okay, so if I was a part-time judge and I was in the deputy district judge, I think they get paid possibly £700 a day. Now that is less than I will earn as a barrister. Yes. So it's a career boost because people obviously go, oh, they're a part-time judge. That's yeah. great. Um, they must be really good at their job. But financially, it's a down for me. Okay. So because I'm self-employed and I don't get sick pay, holiday pay or whatever, I then have to calculate whether actually economically that's something I want to do. Or will the fact that I have taken a, a pay cut for the days that I'm working as a part-time judge be boosted by the improvement of my fees elsewhere because people think they're a judge, they must be good at their job. So that's a tricky thing. We get to it in, in another episode, but I'm, I'm not a very good employee. And you have to be somewhere like on time and toe the line. And <laughs> I'm just not really very good at that. So that aspect I would struggle with. But on the upside, you get paid a pension. 
Oh, watch out, watch out. You get a pension. You get a pension, because obviously it's... Do you always have to wear a wig as well as a judge? No, no, no deputy district judge wears a wig ever, I think, except when they've got some ceremony. Um, In the county court, you're lucky if you get to wear your wig. I get so excited when I go in front of a circuit judge in the county court. I've always got my wig and gown with me. Uh, And and for hearings where they're supposed to wear them. And none of them put them on. They always go, no, we're not robing today. One time I had a trial and the only reason the judge robed is because we were in Winchester when it was um, Guildhall, when it was being a nightingale court. So it was in those big uh, like theatres. It was a massive hall. Um, Yeah, we robed. Do you know the reason why we robed? Go on. It was a bit chilly. It's cold. <laughs> is that it? Just a bit cold. It. That's the reason we've got our robes on. Has anybody got a hat? No, but we've all got wigs. Yeah, that was basically <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but hierarchy-wise, as a career, I think if you if you go to the high court, I think it's brilliant, uh, and I have nothing but respect for effort for full-time judges. But uh, transferring from being a barrister to a judge, sometimes the money is not worth it. I hope that's given you some insight into me and life at the bar. Here's hoping the judiciary don't tell me off for talking about their pay. Make sure you find me and follow me on LinkedIn. Just search for Elizabeth Bowden or College Chambers. Also, subscribe to this podcast because I've got loads more to tell you. Thanks for listening.